Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. Great good morning, everyone. 10.06 a.m. here in the Great Northeast. This beautiful Tuesday, February 27th, year of our Lord 2024. This is the Bob Cordaro Show. I am he. It is a big day to fight for America, defend our values, and honor the brave who have made us and kept us free. People like Kenneth Woods of Wilkes-Barre. Thomas Holland of Mayfield, John Selena of Wyoming, and Dan Bunting, late of Scranton, who we honor today. So with history, our great founding fathers, and the incomparable Constitution of the United States of America as our guides, let us continue today's battle. So we'll regavel back to order this meeting, the Club for Common Sense, and you know what? We strive to educate. We really do. And I stumbled along a guy by the name of Rick Bigelow. He's a patent attorney. Now, there's not too many of them because to be a patent attorney, you not only have to know the law, you have to be a scientist of some measure, some note. Because you've got to analyze everything that comes before you and be comfortable with all of that. And then we find out Rick Bigelow has another talent beyond his scientific and legal knowledge. And that is history. And I, I, I've, I love when he's here and I love when we get to talk to him. Uh, but he is back. Rick Bigelow, how are you? Doing fine, Bob. I'm glad to be with you. Well, uh, you had suggested that we look at uh, Operation Desert Storm back in 1990, uh, setting the stage. Uh, Saddam Hussein had gone into Kuwait, and he just saw it as an opportunity. And now this is August 2nd, and I remember it well. That's I'll tell you why. I was uh, seeking investment to buy a group of radio stations. And as soon as that idiot Saddam went in, there were no investments going to be made, period. Because nobody knew what was going to happen. So all the investment bankers said, Bob, call us in a couple of years. <laughs> so Saddam screwed me. <laughs> so so give us some background on Iraq 
Because a lot of people don't know that it was a creation of the British, essentially. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it, it didn't even really exist as a country until about 1920, after World War One, because back then most of the uh, Arabian Peninsula and and what we know as the Middle East was all part of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans sided with the Germans in World War One. They lost, and they lost a lot of their territories and their empire. So the British came in and and uh, just drew a bunch of lines on. Uh, on the map and said, okay, this is Iraq, this is Saudi Arabia, this is Kuwait, this is Jordan, uh, so on and so forth. And so they really didn't have much uh, much of a, a sense of nationhood. Uh, they were tribal. Rick would Iraq be the most distorted of these nations? I mean, it was... It, it ended up being run by Sunnis who were in the vast minority. Right. You had the Kurds in the north. Right. You had this uh, Shia uh, Muslim group that was the predominant portion of the populace. Now, at that time, pre-Ayatollah Khomeini, they didn't care if they were in charge politically. It wasn't part of their credo. Yeah. But at the same time, it really was slapped together. Right. And and there wasn't a lot unifying the country. So it was it was kind of a uh, a nation by looking at a map, but there was no sense of unity uh, for the most part. So anyway, uh, when Khomeini took over in Iran in 1979 with the revolution, uh, that's when Saddam Hussein decided to invade Iran uh, because there had always been this long-standing uh, conflict between the Persians, uh, who were mostly Shiite uh, Muslims, and the uh, Sunnis, which was primarily the Saudis and and um, some segment of the population in Iraq. So he had an eight-year war from 1980 to 88, and Iraq went from being a very prosperous country to a broke country. And so they, they were given money by the Kuwaitis and by the Saudis and by other Arab nations during the Iran-Iraq war. When the war ended, the subsidies stopped. So uh, Iraq was broke. They looked to their very prosperous neighbor to the south, and they had always considered that Kuwait really should have been part of Iraq because historically it was uh, one of the uh, one of the provinces under the Ottoman Empire and so on and so forth. So. Uh, they felt they had legitimate claims to it. And uh, when the Kuwaitis stopped giving the money, Saddam Hussein uh, invaded on uh, August 2nd of 1990. So that set off all kinds of uh, alarm bells in the Western world because so much of the oil was coming out of the Persian Gulf, and a lot of it was coming from Kuwait. And at the time, we were a net importer of oil, as were a lot of the other major economies in in Europe and Japan and Korea and so on and so forth. So this was a big deal. Uh, after he went into Kuwait with such ease, they were very concerned that he was going to keep on going into Saudi Arabia. So that's when uh, Bush uh, formed this coalition to to basically ensure that Saudi Arabia was defended. And amazingly, the, the king of Saudi Arabia agreed to it. So we started bringing 
hundreds of thousands of troops and all kinds of equipment and so on and so forth into Saudi Arabia to make sure that Saddam Hussein didn't uh, continue his, his invasion and take over the Saudi oil fields, which would have meant if he did that, he would have controlled about 40 percent of, of the world's oil. Uh, so we we come into the fall of uh, of 1990. Uh, we're pretty sure that he's not going to invade Saudi Arabia. And there were discussions at the U.N. and all kinds of back channels and so on about what we should do here. And in November of uh, 1990, the security, U.N. Security Council passed a resolution by a 12 to 2 vote that said Saddam Hussein in Iraq has to leave Iraq by, uh, pardon me, leave Kuwait by January 15th of 1991, or else we'll force him out. Uh, so we continued to build up our forces. In, in the fall of 1990, we had enough to, to have a defensive campaign against any Iraqi incursion into Saudi Arabia, but we needed to get a lot more in order to uh, mount an offensive campaign. Rick Bigelow, so let's go. Think- let's go back uh, to, and I, I, I wanted to skip over it, but I don't think we can. Uh, back in July, we had an ambassador to Iraq by the name of April Glaspy, right? And she basically says, "We don't care what you do." <laughs> And it yeah. sends all the wrong signals to Hussein, who then says, well, geez, the United States is not going to do anything about it. Let me go. Let me go take care of Kuwait. Right. Uh, April Glaspie was was called in to uh, meet with Saddam Hussein. And on instructions from the State Department, she was uh, she told that uh, Hussein that, you know, it's an Arab thing and we really don't think we should be involved with uh, disputes with the Arabs. Uh, uh, so, so you're right. Basically, uh, that told Saddam Hussein that the U.S. wasn't going to do anything, which was his first major miscalculation of the, the whole affair. Well, I mean, he was right to calculate that way after the ambassador said so. Right. And, and I think his calculus was uh, the United States is just a paper tiger, uh, they got their butts kicked in Vietnam. The American public would never stand for uh, another uh, foreign adventure uh, thousands of miles away from the United States. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, there was some justification for that philosophy. Uh, and, you know, the Soviet Union was in decline at this point in time. And, and so he just didn't see any downside. Yeah. All right, so he goes he 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 goes all out August 3rd. And then Bush ordered US troops to Saudi Arabia in response. He says right. they're under imminent threat. The UK follows immediately and Desert Shield begins. Right. So I and and I think you have to give uh, George H W Bush a lot of credit for building this coalition which wasn't just the uh, British, but we got the French to come along too, and, and several African nations, and the Saudis, and the Qataris, and the Bahrainis. And uh, there, was, there was widespread, uh, we even had troops from Afghanistan come in and, uh, and support the, the coalition. 
at this point in time. And, mm. and I think Bush did a masterful job yeah. of creating this coalition and holding it together. So we, we get to January 15th, uh, and that's there were all kinds of back-channel discussions and uh, discussions at the U.N., uh, trying to get Saddam Hussein to agree to leave. And he would kind of agree for a while and then say, well, no, I have certain conditions. And and uh, so uh, we had a vote in, in the Congress uh, that authorized uh, U.S. troops to go to war in the Middle East. And the, the ho- vote in the House was 250 to 183 in favor. In the Senate, it was much closer as 52 to 47. And of course, at this time, it was all Democrats. It was democratically controlled. And once again, it's amazing that Bush was able to pull this off. So not only did he create this international well, we just, coalition. We just played uh, Bill Clinton talking about the border. It's a very different Democrat party than today, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so January 15th comes and goes. And then early in the morning on January 16th, uh, Operation Desert Storm commences. And what followed was approximately oh, six weeks of almost nonstop air attacks against the uh, Iraqi positions in Kuwait and also in, uh, in Iraq itself. In fact, we, uh, this is where the, uh, the stealth fighter first came into use, uh, going right downtown into Baghdad and taking out all the, not all, but a lot of the command and control, radar, intelligence, all that sort of stuff that, uh, that the Iraqis had situated in, in, in Baghdad. And at the same time, we were we, we focused initially on taking out what, what's known as their command and control, their radar sites, uh, some of their SAM sites, so on and so forth. And this, and is, it wasn't this a, is pre-smart bomb. I mean, well, this is we, almost – well, I, at least what we understand of today. There was not precision munitions at any level we we understand and see today. I mean, it was sort yeah, of actually, pretty conventional. It was, it was the early days of, of uh, precision-guided so yeah. weapons. And, and in fact, one of the interesting stories about this is this is where we first started to see what the, the cruise missiles could do. Yeah. And many of the cruise missiles were launched from Navy ships. And, of course, they were going over the desert, and these were terrain-guided terrain uh, missiles. So they had to vector them over Iran, over the mountains in Iran, so that they could get a good bearing. <laughs> so hmm. they, they fired them into Iran. They turned around and went uh, into Iraq, into Baghdad, and so on and so forth. So uh, <laughs> It it was. It, I think if a cruise missile had gone down in Iran, it would have been big news. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Operation Desert Storm commences, and the Iraqi military that we built up, I think our media anyway, in our minds as incredibly formidable, a million troops, you know, 5,000 tanks, 200 helicopters, 900 airplanes, and they had a you know a couple dozen naval vessels. They were all deeply, deeply entrenched, and there was a lot of concern that this would be our Waterloo. Were we ready? You know, we're just, you know, we're still suffering the effects of Vietnam. Was there a new generation ready to do things? And 
All of this hangs in the balance, and we'll come back with Rick Bigelow after this to talk about the initial assault. We'll be back. It's the Bob Cadero Show. Billy Joel, he won a Grammy for Album of the Year. This date, 1980, for his album, 52nd Street, Murph picked the song Big Shot. And before that was George Bush telling the U.S. Congress, both houses, Kuwait is liberated, Iraq's army is defeated, and that uh, allied forces would suspend uh, combat operations at midnight Eastern time. Uh, Rick Bigelow is our guest. Desert Storm is our subject. Uh, Our friend of the program, uh, a great friend of the program, and our Monday Musings guy, John Perillo, tells me, uh, Rick Bigelow, he says, as a side note, they would not start the ground war until we had built a 500-bed hospital uh, on a a ship, and uh, John was part of that whole thing. It was really meticulously planned, was it not? Oh, Absolutely. And we didn't have I mean, we we didn't have that kind of uh, major operation in in a long long time, and we crept into Vietnam. This was a buildup within a you know just a number of months. It, that's right. Uh, you know, as as amazing as it was in World War II with the the logistics, uh, it was equally amazing in the, in the Gulf region and. You know, you, you talk about Vietnam, and I think at, at the max we had oh, something like 550,000 troops in Vietnam. Well, we had 600,000 in, in and around uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, getting ready to go into Kuwait and into Iraq. And that doesn't count. You know, we probably had another 100,000 uh, Marines and sailors on ships off the, the coast, and we had uh, more in the Red Sea and— we had uh, more troops on uh, on navy ships in the, in the Mediterranean and so on and so forth. So you know was, what? Uh, to Rick Bigelow, we were blessed with incredible leadership, uh, both in the, the civilian side and starting with President Bush, and and then on the military side with Colin Powell and uh, or General Schwarzkopf. And I mean, I remember, you know, they're facing these what appeared to be millions of entrenched people. They could remember they called his elite troops and they're entrenched. Right. And we started dropping the B 52 start dropping bombs and their eardrums were exploding literally in the trenches. And I, I had yeah, to be saying, uh, this is Allah. <laughs> well, and I, I think one of the things to remember is, the uh, the frontline troops along the uh, along the Kuwait Saudi Arabian border were mostly conscripts, yeah, uh, and and a lot of them were Shiite, and and they weren't really big fans of Saddam, and I think it, it was almost like press gangs in England in the 16 and 1700s. Yeah, they'd come by and say, "You have to uh, join the military, or else we're going to persecute your family." But they'd uh, so, seen, they'd s- neither saw or experienced anything like the military power that we brought to bear. And then I, I just remember uh, Schwarzkopf talking about it, and he said, "Well, they're in these trenches, 
So we just decided to go around them. <laughs> we went around some of and and uh, you know, frankly, especially our, our tanks and our artillery was so far superior to what the Iraqis had that we could hit them at long range and they couldn't hit us. Yeah. Basically, so we got to wipe a lot of them out and and uh, of course with the the, the helicopters, the Black Hawk helicopters and so on and so forth. We went in with overwhelming force. And, you know, for guys like uh, Colin Powell and, and Schwarzkopf, they had uh, served in Vietnam, and, and, and they just weren't going to go unless we went in with overwhelming force. So that, that, was, that was their condition. And I, the original plan uh, was to keep around three or 400,000 troops in Saudi Arabia and go right up uh, into Kuwait City. And that's what the uh, that's what the Iraqis expected. Instead, we put all these forces out into the into the desert and made what uh, Schwarzkopf called his left hook, yeah. and and uh, attacked Kuwait City and Kuwait from uh, from several different directions. But it was just overwhelming, and it wasn't just us. It was uh, it was British, and they had some first line tanks, and the French had some real good tanks, and on the uh, eastern front. There were a bunch of uh, Saudi tanks and also tanks from uh, Oman and Bahrain and, and uh, other uh, of the United Arab Emirates and so on and so, so forth. And those were the ones who actually went into Kuwait, along with the 1st and 2nd Marine Division. My so, uh, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Booker uh, Butler, is, well, he was a tanker in the Army. And uh, we we loved our tank battles. Well, one of the largest tank battles since World War II took place during this confrontation. Right. In fact, there were three major tank battles, and uh, we came out on top by a decided advantage in, in all three of them. And we we basically destroyed much of uh, of Saddam Hussein's uh, tank uh, capabilities. But the unfortunate thing about it was a lot of the Republican Guard escaped yeah. uh, back up into Iraq. And uh, within a couple of days, we had taken uh, Kuwait, uh, taken Kuwait City, and we pretty much uh, had liberated Kuwait within a couple of days. And the, the, the second part of the plan was to, to basically destroy the Republican Guard. And we didn't quite get to do that. Uh, I think the information we had was most of the Republican Guard had been destroyed, but that's not what happened. And, of course, 12 years later, we were back kind of doing the same thing against the Republican Guard. Under more questionable I, circumstances, I yeah, might add. I, it, <laughs> let me add one, one thing about the Scuds. You know, the, the, their, their biggest uh, advantage they had was their Scud missiles, which weren't particularly good. Uh, and they were erratic. They, they couldn't be controlled very well. But they sent, oh, maybe 90 Scud missiles uh, into Saudi Arabia and also uh, into Israel. And what Saddam Hussein was trying to do there was uh, get the Israelis to come into the war, because if the Israelis came into the war, most of the uh, other Arab nations would probably leave. They would leave the coalition. So uh, it was smart on his part, but once again, you got to give George Bush credit yeah. because he talked to the Israeli uh, prime minister and said, uh, don't come in because this thing is going to be over if you do. 
And besides, you can't do anything that we're not already doing. So you got to give them a lot of credit for that. Rick, I, Rick Bigelow, I remember thoughts at the time. Everybody thought that the most efficient and lethal military, for smaller scale, obviously, though, was Israel. And I think we demonstrated that the United States was by far the most efficient military in the world. Yeah, a lot bigger. Uh, and, you know, basically our weapons were across the board as good or much better than than what the Israelis had. I mean, Israel's a small nation. Yeah. And uh, they don't have they don't have a huge standing army. Uh, ours was was much bigger. And, you know, we took our we took our army halfway across the world and uh, and uh, put them in the desert, which we weren't prepared for. And uh, we adapted, and and uh, we beat a fairly large army. Although it was, like you said, it was blown out of proportions by the by the media. One one other thing about the Scuds, uh, the Scud missile that shot into uh, the center of Iraq hit a U.S. Uh, base, and it killed oh, something on the order of seven. I think it was like seventy or so. Uh, American soldiers. That was they were all from a an Army Reserve unit from Western Pennsylvania, mm. and they were there uh, as part of a water purification unit. So they were several hundred miles behind the the front lines, and that just showed in the era of missiles, everybody's on the front lines. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's safe. Uh, Rick Bigelow, we're going to take a break. We got our veterans tribute. I just wanted you. We'll go over the aftermath of all of this. Uh, when we return, but uh, Rick Bigelow is our guest. Operation Desert Storm is our subject. It's the Bob Cadaro Show. Our veterans today, Kenneth Woods, Wilkes-Barre. He was born in Wilkes-Barre, U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. Retired from the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Plains Township. Survived by his wife of 52 years, Linda his sons, and grandchildren. Kenneth Woods, we lost him January 26th. Thomas Holland of Mayfield, his wife survives him. They were married 57 years, Thomas and Margaret. Born in Scranton, Scranton Technical High School, served proudly in the United States Air Force. Worked as a truck driver, crane operator, so many people know him for an event on September 28, 1984. He was on his way to work. He stopped at a house that was completely engulfed in flames, jumped on the roof, kicked in the window, and saved an 18-month-old baby. Survived by three children, grandchildren, a great-granddaughter and step-grandchildren. A true hero, Thomas Holland. John Salina, Wyoming, raised in Wyoming. Wyoming Memorial High School, class of 54. U.S. Army veteran serving his country for three years during peacetime. Rank a specialist for class. Technician for 3M Company. Loved his model trains. He had a whole setup in his home. After a tragic loss of his son Joseph in a house fire at Bloomsburg University, he turned to woodworking and created countless works of art 
for family and friends. Left to cherish his memory are his wife, Rita, their children, and five grandchildren. John Selena, George Bunting, known as Dan, formerly of Scranton. His wife of 55 years, Eileen, survives him. United States Army veteran joined right out of high school. Served in Vietnam from 1966 to 1967. Then worked at Tobahanna Army Depot. In addition to his wife, he survived by a son, three grandsons, and another son, Michael. Dan Bunting. Our veterans for today. Storm Tracker 16 forecast from meteorologist Allie Gallo. Today breaks of sun this morning, then increasing clouds with showers late in the day. High of 58. Tonight, clouds and rain, it'll be down to 50. Wednesday, it all changes. Cloudy and windy with rain, high of 60. Then temperatures will fall into the 20s late Wednesday night. Remember, it's leap year. So apparently, uh, it'll come in like a lion, which maybe is a good thing, at least so they say. So Rick McCormick is our, or Rick Bigelow rather is our guest. I'm thinking of Dave McCormick, our Senate candidate, and we're talking about the first Gulf War. And and Rick, what was give us the aftermath, at least militarily? Well, uh, the uh, the statistics on the uh, on the fatalities was was amazing. We had about 149. Uh, KIA and and many of them came from that one scud strike deep into Saudi Arabia. On the other hand, uh, the uh, the Iraqis, uh, the original estimates were they lost between sixty and a hundred thousand. Uh, that was reduced to probably twenty five to uh, to thirty thousand. Uh, the the one bad thing about it, like I said before, was. Uh, a lot of the Republican Guard escaped back into Iraq, and there was all kinds of discussion about, well, we should have just followed them right up into into Baghdad and, and bombed them on the way. But I think it's absolutely clear that uh, if we had continued up into, uh, into Baghdad and tried to take out Saddam Hussein, much of the coalition would have deserted uh, because they were all for – uh, getting Iraq out of Kuwait, but they didn't want to see regime change in, in the Middle East. So I, I can't really fault uh, what they did if they would have uh, oh, uh, kept going for another 12 to 24 hours. Maybe they could have taken out a lot more of the Republican Guard. So you on, remember on what March was the 6th, highway of death? I remember yeah, that, that so well. That As they were retreating, we could have really killed a lot of people. And I, I, I thought, yeah, we should, but at the same point, I understand understood the humanity of not killing these fleeing troops. The sad part is you knew they were going to go back to Iraq and terrorize their own people. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, after the the uh, treaty or the end of the war was was uh, signed, the ceasefire actually, uh, one of the unintended consequences, uh, the uh, the Iraqi generals asked Schwarzkopf if uh, they could uh, keep their helicopters because all the roads and railroads had been 
bombed out and they needed to have helicopters so that they could uh, communicate and, you know, take uh, wounded to hospitals and so on and so forth. So Schwarzkopf said, sure, you can keep the helicopters. They used the helicopters to basically kill the Shiite uh, majorities in the, in the southern part of Iraq and to uh, basically rain terror down on the Kurds in the northern part of Iraq. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were hoping that uh, that there would be popular uprisings there, and there were, and that they would, uh, they would actually depose Saddam Hussein. But uh, he was pretty brutal in putting down these uprisings, and there's there's no doubt that that more Iraqis and Kurds were killed uh, by Saddam Hussein putting down these uprisings than were killed by the coalition forces in in the war. And and uh, so that was Rick Bigelow. As you reflect on it, was it a mistake not to to go further? I think if we could have kept going for another 12 hours or so, uh, we could have taken out a lot of the Republican Guard. Uh, Would they have reconstituted? Yeah, probably. Um, But I I think from a a humanitarian and from an American view, uh, we did the right thing. In fact, there are stories of a lot of our chopper pilots and and pilots who were just uh, laying waste to everything along the, the highway of death. They didn't like doing it. Yeah, uh, it was one thing to to engage in a fair fight, but this was sort of like a, a slaughter. It was just like the the Marianas turkey shoot yeah. uh, against the Japanese in the Philippine Sea. Uh, yeah, after a while, uh, it it's it's not honorable uh, combat. It was just a slaughter. So yeah. th- the interesting thing about it is, within a few years. Uh, Bush and and uh, Margaret Thatcher were out of office, and Saddam Hussein, uh, was, still Hussein was still in power. <laughs> in fact, uh, it, it, in a lot of uh, chutzpah, Saddam Hussein declared that he had won a great victory. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care how many of my people get killed giving me that victory. Yeah. Exactly. Rick Bigelow, thank you so much. It was good to revisit Desert Storm and the first Gulf War. Thank you, as always, and we look forward to your next next lecture. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Bob, I'm I'm thinking uh, maybe in a couple weeks we'll talk about MacArthur in in World War II because March 12th of 1942 is when he, quote-unquote, escaped from Corregidor. One of my favorite. <laughs> MacArthur's one of the most complex and interesting characters. Uh, I, I, I'll talk about him anytime. Thank you, Rick Bigelow. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Anytime, Bob. All right. We'll take a break. Bob Cadaro, WILK. We will return. Bloomberg Money Minute. After another great lesson and history from Rick Bigelow. We'll be back on the Bob Cadaro Show. to call or to text us, the Doobie Brothers. They won both record and song of the year. This date, 1980, for their hit, What a Fool Believes. (laughs) We can talk about a lot of left-wing Democrats there. Couldn't we not? Well, I always... uh, inspired uh, by Rick Bigelow and 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 it was it's always interesting to have something put together for you 
when you already know the history, and then you get more depth to your knowledge. A lot of these things, I mean, I've read about, followed, all that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, neat stuff. So, uh, Bulldog, we got Rebecca on the phone. Let's get Rebecca right on. Yeah, if she can. Uh, You know we do a weekly segment with uh, Rebecca Martino at Stately Spets, uh, the owner, operator at Stately Pet Supplies up in Clark Summit. And she's with us now. And I said, let's finish the hour with Rebecca Martino. Hi, Rebecca. (laughs) That works out well. I I rarely have timing like that. Thanks, Bob. Um, Okay, so what I was thinking about last night that I'd like to talk about is a general industry tip for pet products. I, um, I'll start from um, just from a little background is I'm an RN who quit her job to specialize in pet products, which is uh, a neat little tool that I think I have in the industry that gives you a little, a little difference than, um, you know, let's say a part-time worker that's standing in front of your pet food products. I bring a little uh, medical perspective to it that often parallels with pets. But anyway, in a, in a general pet product piece of advice today, I, there's there's something that's seldom talked about in pet food until it's a problem. It's it's uh, if you've ever had a pet on a food, and the food was recalled. Um, I think a lot of people might be nodding their heads hearing something like that. There's a lot of trust when you open that bag, and then you scoop it and you give it to the dog. There's a lot of trust that it was already checked for germs, yeah. and that's uh, not typically the case. Because that's an optional expense that companies um, that companies incur. It's optional. You can't tell on a bag if they've done that already. So you kind of trust that they have, and it's actually kind of rare. Now, when you find a bag that um, when you find a bag that uh, how can I put this? How you can tell? Best way to tell, and this is what I do, is you call the companies, and where you really I make a lot of movie references. Remember Uncle Buck when he's making breakfast and there's that giant pancake the size of the island and he goes, all right, this is where we really separate the men from the boys. And he's got that big snow shovel flipping a giant pancake. (laughs) What you do in pet food is you call the company and you say, are you batch testing? Batch testing foods is the way that you prevent any E. coli, listeria, salmonella from getting into your pet food because companies don't have to they are the better ones that opt to do that before the food is sent out so in general it's not possible to mass produce food and never have anything go wrong so the companies that have never had a recall are the ones that are testing it and destroying the batches before they're ever sent out to make your pet sick instead of never testing sending it out, and then waiting to see if your pet gets sick. Rebecca Martino's our guest. Another big deal. Uh, Rebecca Martino's our guest. She she owns and operates uh, Stately Pet Supply up in Clark Summit, uh, an incredible store. And uh, so so you do that for us. <laughs> you Correct. find that, out who that's... tests, who, who, who separates the good from the bad and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Right. And it saves us a lot of time. I, I'm, I'm, I love to delegate, <laughs> and I get you, to is... I get to delegate to you and Stately Pet Supply, 
my choices, and it has worked out very well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the most fun to be an independent store. So what's in here is my say, and what gets booted is my say. So this is, it's a really neat thing to have a 100% independent store, and we're not a unique business model. We're just the only one in Clark Summit. Yeah. Well, I, well, I, I think it's I think it's a cut above. <laughs> I, that's my view. I, Thank you. Stately Pet Supplies a cut above. It's a it's a it's just a comfortable place to go to. How are the cats doing up there? Well, Sophie's twenty two and still kicking. I, I poke her every morning to make sure she's warm and breathing, but she's uh, she's still coming along. So if anyone <laughs> likes cats and you want to get your cat fixed, but you don't want to do your own litter boxes, stop in here and. You can pet our three cats, and the oldest one we have is 22 years old. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> All right, Thank so you. so ch- check the companies, or let Stately Pet Supply do it. Check the companies who test their batches of their products, and you'll avoid some of the problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Better than waiting and hoping. That's a that's a key point rebecca martina thank you. thank you so much for for coming on and it was a it was a drop-in so it was perfect it worked out nicely thank yeah. you very much Bob. all right rebecca martino stately pet supplies clark summit we'll be talking to you next week thanks a lot. all right time for the news with brian hughes we will return betsy smith on this horrendous situation and the murder in georgia we'll be back WYLK News Radio. This is the Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.